Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 19. And we are continuing our story here about the glorious return of Jesus Christ. Uh, We've spoken of his appearing as heaven opens, and then he appears with his armies. He comes riding on a white horse. He comes with his army of redeemed men of holy angels. And this is really a spectacular and an overwhelming sight. But it's also a very frightening one to those who have never received Christ as their Savior. Now, the scene that I'm talking about here is not the rapture. Uh, We're not talking about that particular time. That's already taken place seven years before this. And then a terrible time of tribulation uh, happens. And what we're looking at here is the end of the tribulation period when the wicked empire of the Antichrist is being destroyed. Babylon has already been put down at this point, and this is the last gasp of the Antichrist to maintain control. And Christ comes back in the second phase of his second coming, riding on the white horse to defeat the armies of the Antichrist. But it won't be successful for the Antichrist, and that's something that's been known for centuries. Uh, We've been looking forward to this time. The Old Testament tells us about it. You go back even as far as the Garden of Eden, and you find the promise there that, that Christ is coming. And when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, it was no surprise to God that that was going to happen. And immediately upon the fall, God said to Eve that the time would come that Christ would come here to restore order and to restore his creation to the original condition. That's the gist of what you read in Genesis 3.15. So the process of doing that, though, is not an easy one. It's not a pretty one. Uh, It's been a centuries-long struggle, and what we're looking at here is the end of the struggle. And the end of it is violent. It ends with fury. There's a great battle that takes place where uh, just unimaginable bloodshed Uh, happens in this great battle, a one-sided battle that's over almost before it even begins. Now, our text verses here in the book of Revelation tell us about this. Uh, Revelation 19, and beginning in verse number 17, says, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh." Now, this scene that we're reading here is a continuation of what we read in verses 11 through 16. And in verse number 11, this is where John says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. The one who sits on the white horse is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the last part of that verse, it says, In righteousness he doth judge and make war. And that's what he's doing in verses 17 through 21. With righteous judgment, he wars against the wickedness of men 
Because he's ready to begin his kingdom upon the earth. And that means that wickedness must be dealt with. Sinful men have to be dealt with. And so God is going to put down the rebellion of man. Now in the previous parts of the message, I'm just going to list for you the things that we've already discussed. We talked about the anticipation of Christ's return, the appearance of Christ, the appellations of Christ, the anger of Christ, the apparel of Christ, and the armies of Christ. And I'm not going to go back through all of those things tonight. Tonight we're speaking about Armageddon. And some of you may be happy that this seventh part of the message is the last one on this particular subject. But we're talking about Armageddon, and that's the final battle that we've just read about in verses 17 through 21. And this is uh, the part of Revelation, I think, that's really interesting for most people. You know, most people know at least two things about Revelation. Even if you're not a child of God, if you don't know very much about the Bible, people have heard at least two things about Revelation. One is the number 666. Everybody wants to know what that's all about. What is the number 666? I mean, you hear that, you see that. And the second thing that interests people is Armageddon. And I think those are one or two, uh, one and two in the book of Revelation. Maybe Armageddon is even on top. People have heard things about this. But whichever one of those that, they've, that they think that they know about, neither one of them is understood very well because some people just simply do not believe that God could act in this way or that God is capable of this. People who don't preach the cross of Christ, those that are squeamish about blood, those who will not talk about an everlasting hell those who are always looking at their lovey-dovey picture portraits of Jesus on the wall do not want to consider that this could actually happen. But this is the second coming, not the first coming of Christ. Now, the first time we know that Christ came, he's that meek and gentle one who sat on the donkey. He was submissive to the mocking and the reviling and the beatings of men. That was Jesus, the lamb, who was led to the slaughter and was willingly willing to go there. But here, in the second coming of Christ, the tables are reversed. Now, he came actually the first time to provide redemption so that people would not have to face what we're talking about right here. There is a way out of this, and that is because of the redemption of Christ and belief in him. And people can, uh, or they won't have to go through this if they simply believe in him. But we have this scene before us here when he comes to take vengeance on those who have repeatedly rejected him. And these are the warnings of that. Now, we've already seen in chapter 9 the terrible time of tribulation and the refusal of men to turn to God. Now, in Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, it says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, speaking about all the plagues happening in the time of tribulation, yet repented not of their works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. And then in chapter 11, you see more of this. More destruction comes, and rather than for these people to repent of their sins, the Scripture tells us there that the nations are angry about it. They're not repentant. They're simply angry at the judgment that God has brought upon the earth. And they're more determined than ever that they're going to defy God. And so we find them here in these verses headed to Armageddon. And this is where they're going to make their last attempt to overthrow God. This is defiance of God's kingdom. And so they come to this place called Armageddon. Now we're looking then 
at these last verses in chapter 19 in which we see the call of the angel. Verse 17 tells us about the call of the angel. There's a a, a mighty angel that stands there and he blocks out the sun, an angel with brightness above uh, the sunshine with the glory of God, and he makes an announcement to all the birds and tells them that there's a great feast that's been prepared for them, a great supper has been prepared. Now, the supper that we're speaking of here is not a bird feeder in a nature lover's backyard, but it's talking about this great valley in Israel, a 200-mile-long stretch of land in which all the armies of the world are going to be gathered, and the feast is the dead bodies of those men. Now, in our last message, we, we left off with the migration the migration, and I thought that this was an interesting part of the story, that there's a great migration of both birds and bodies, a migration of fowls and of foes. And the migration of the fowls is an interesting one because Israel is a thin strip of land that connects two great continents. Asia is on the north, and you have Africa on the south. On the west, you have the Mediterranean Sea, and on the east, you have desert. And so you have this small, narrow strip of land over which the birds fly on their migratory routes. And the reason that they do that is because there is so much food there. There's none in the Mediterranean Sea and none in the desert, so they fly right over Israel. So the birds then are called by this angel, and this angel speaks the language of the Creator, and he diverts all of these birds into this valley where the carnage of men awaits. Now, normally, that valley is filled with fruits and vegetables. As I mentioned last week, you go there today, and it's a, that area of the country is a lush green garden where many uh, fruits and vegetables, some of the best in the world, are grown there. But the birds are not gathered at this particular time for all the fruits and the vegetables. They're gathered because they have been called to this great feast where they're going to feast upon the carnage of men. Nobody is leaving this valley alive. And so they have that migration. But there's also the migration of men because this is the predetermined chosen gathering place by God. This is the place where he prepares to move the armies of the world. The concentration of all the world's armies are in this place so that in one devastating blow, God can destroy them all at once. Well, how does God do that? How does God make this possible? Now, the birds we've already seen here, they're bit, they've been moved by the command of the angel. Why is it that these armies of the world willingly march to their place of death? Well, I'd like you to turn over to chapter 16, and this is where we find the reason God uses means. He has instruments for his purposes. God can use a demon if he so chooses. God can use the Antichrist if he wants to. God can use the devil himself to accomplish his purposes. And so we see in Revelation 16, verse number 12, it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now there is the first part of God's plan. He makes it easy for people to get there. Now back when we studied the 16th chapter, I mentioned to you that the Euphrates River has long been a natural barrier for troop movements in that part of the world. Even going back to the ancient armies, that uh, the, the Euphrates River was a problem for them. So what God is going to do, he's going to dry up that river, and he's going to make it easy for people to get here to this valley. And so these kings that are in confederation with the Antichrist, they will take this route and come through the Euphrates River on their way to Israel. 
Now, you may remember this, that when we studied about this, uh, these ten kings that are in confederation with the Antichrist were symbolized by ten horns that were on the beast. Now, if you'll stay right here where you are in chapter 16, let me just read you a, to, to you for a moment from chapter 13. John says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now, this is symbolic language, and what he's speaking of here is the Antichrist. So the Antichrist comes, and it says he has seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, the Antichrist, of course, is not some kind of strange creature with all these different heads and horns and all of that. Again, we're talking about symbolic language here. And the ten horns represent ten kings, and the ten crowns represent their kingdoms. So these are ten kings that have joined in the Antichrist confederation. Now, throughout the Antichrist tenure, there's been, there, there will be infighting among all of these kings because they don't want to give up their power. But... Here they think that they have a chance to overthrow God. If they'll come together, they'll bring all their armies here, and they'll all join together in one last attempt to save them all. And so the Euphrates River is dried up, the river that would impede their movements, and so the troops walk across and they come into Israel. Now, if you look again back in the 16th chapter, in verse number 13, it says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, come up out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. This is God working behind the scenes to get these men uh, where he wants them. So the spirit of devils, it says, devils, the demons that come up out of the abyss, they come and they deceive these kings. These are miracle-working demons. They, they convince them that they can win this war. If they will just get together on a unified front and they'll come here, they can win the war. Now, if you wonder why uh, they would believe this after seven years of devastation, they've been through the tribulation period, they've seen what God can do, why would they possibly believe that they could actually come and win a war against God? And this is your answer right here. It's because they are deceived. Now, we have another scripture that describes uh, God's control over this deception. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And that scripture is speaking about this very time. God is the one who sends these demon spirits. Now, it's not because he's created evil. The evil already exists in the hearts of these men. But he allows that evil to be stirred up. And these men are deceived. Just like the Bible tells us that Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light and he deceives people. That's what these demons do. They come and they play upon the pride of men and the overwhelming desire that these men have to sin and the power that they want to have. And so they convince the kings that they can have victory. It's within their grasp. And so they come to Armageddon with their heads held high, thinking they're going to win the day. But I want you to look at what the one king that matters, the one that matters, what he says. This is in verse number 15. He said, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And listen to verse 16. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue 
Armageddon. So God is the one who gathers them there. The Antichrist thinks that it's his idea. The the uh, the the uh, ten kings that are coming there, they believe that they're the ones that have devised the battle plan. It's their idea. Satan thinks it's his idea. But really this is God's doing because he's the one who had the plan in the very beginning to gather them here. And that's why he calls all the birds to be ready when this carnage takes place. Now next we see, number two, is the variation. The fowls are called to this feast, and in verse number 18 we see the variety in their meal. Now if you want a healthy diet, you always ought to have a little bit of variety in it. And in Revelation 19 it tells us about the variety. It says, Come and gather yourselves together under the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. I don't think I need to break all of that down for you. You can see that what he's speaking of here is all classes of people, from mighty kings to lowly slaves, captains of thousands and mighty men, right down to the rank and file of those that follow. Now we ask, well, why is there such a great variety here? Well, the principle is a long-standing one with God. Uh, the Bible tells us that God is not a respecter of persons. You know, we often say that it really doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter where you've been, that God is able to save you. It doesn't make any difference what you've done wrong. God can save you. But there's another side of that as well. It doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what good that you think that you've done. God will judge you. And so from the mightiest men to the, no, the noblest kings, captains overall, right down to the lowest part of people that are on the lowest rungs of the social ladder, which means that your neighborhood that you live in doesn't matter. The job that you have, that doesn't matter. If you have everything, if you have nothing, it doesn't matter. Everybody is going to stand before God and they're going to be judged. So this represents all sorts of people from all different classes of people. They're all going to be judged. Now, I want you to bear in mind, though, we're talking about Armageddon. We're not talking about the final judgment of God. That comes later. We'll get to that a little bit later. But I'll put it to you this way. There is no wicked person that's ever going to get out of this world alive. God's going to take them out. Now, thirdly, we see the execution. They're all gathered into the valley. Uh, Armies from all over the world have arrived, and so the generals are ready, and the men are gung-ho. They're ready to fight. And they believe that they're going to end God's control over them forever, right here. And so they, they think that they're going to be able to go back to the business that they've been in for that seven years, that, that business of vice and corruption and lewdness and self-gratification. They're ready to get back to it. And so they come to the battle thinking they're going to win. But as we've seen, not so fast because the king appears and he comes with that army, that army of redeemed men and angels, And they raise their weapons against God, but before they ever get a chance to fire a shot, the king speaks. Now, the king doesn't need physical weapons. Just like he spoke the world into existence, he can speak anyone out of existence. And we've already seen that God gives life to people. God tells people, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. If you have faith in me, you're forgiven, you're made whole. But he can also say, your life is history. You are out of here. That's another reaction. Now, we see this in verse number 15. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, 
that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now there it says, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Now that's not a literal sword. I'm not talking about a sword that's stuck in his mouth. It's figurative, and it's speaking of the spoken word of God. In the book of Hebrews, it says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. That verse is mainly speaking about the, the spiritual aspect of God's word, that it's able to penetrate the unseen part of man, that it's able to break man down, it's able to judge him. But in Revelation, we're reading about another function of the Word. That's the creative power of the Word of God. It's quick and it's powerful. And when God speaks, life comes or life goes. Well, I suppose a pertinent question would be, how does the bloodshed come? If we're not talking about a physical sword, then how does the bloodshed come? How does he actually execute these people? Well, there's no physical sword, so how does the blood flow out? I don't know exactly how that happens. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But maybe we've got a little bit of a clue, somewhat of a description in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 14, verse number 12, it says, And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. And so they'll be standing there, and suddenly their flesh will, uh, flesh will begin to melt away from their bones, and their eyes will just pop out and disintegrate. When I read that, the first thing that comes to my mind is Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, that's, uh, that's one of my favorite movies. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but that's one of my favorites. I don't have time to give you the whole plot because I'm not going to preach Raiders of the Lost Ark tonight. But the whole story is about finding the long-lost Ark of the Covenant. And one of the closing scenes, the Ark of the Covenant is found, and they do what God has forbidden for anyone to do, and that was they touched the Ark, and then they looked inside of it. And if you remember in this scene, they look inside the Ark, and there's this penetrating light that goes out, and it goes through the room, and there's this guy standing there, and suddenly his flesh starts to melt right off the bones, and his eyes stick out. And that's what I think of when I, when I see this. This guy collapses like an ice cream cone that melts on a hot summer day. So the red blood flows down. And I, I don't know if they read Zechariah 14 to get this picture, to get that scene, but that's what it reminds me of. Christ is going to speak, and then there's going to be millions of these puddles of blood as the bodies melt and blood starts mingling together. And as the Word of God says, it splashes up on the uh, horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Well, maybe you can imagine that, and maybe not. But there are millions of dead bodies that are, that are in this valley. Their bodies are not turned to ashes. There has to be something for the birds to eat. So these men die, and the birds swoop in. So we have lots of bodies. There are mounds and mounds of decaying bodies, rotting flesh, horses that also die in the battle. And so the birds come to feast upon that. But I don't think that the birds can eat all of it. I mean, there's so much there that the birds could never eat all of it. They'd be so fat they couldn't fly away. And, and birds don't stock refrigerators, so they're not saving up something for later. So we've got a problem here. What's going to happen with all of those dead bodies? Now, the millennial kingdom is about to start. And 
the earth has to be purged. If you go back and you read in the Old Testament, you'll find there that whenever there were dead bodies, when there was warfare and so forth, uh, the, the, the land had to be cleansed from that. And so before the millennial kingdom begins, the, the land has to be cleansed or has to be in the process of that. And so what will happen is, is they're going to have to bury all of these dead bodies. What are you going to do with the leftovers? Well, Ezekiel tells us something about this. Ezekiel chapter 39. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers. And there they shall bury Gog and all his multitude, and they shall call it the valley of Hammond Gog, and seven months shall the house of Israel be bearing them, that they may cleanse the land. And it shall stop the noses of the passengers. What that means is that the smell of rotting corpses is going to be awful. And it's going to take seven months to bury all of these people. I mean, with all of our modern technology, it's going to take seven months to bury them. So that's the execution. That happens suddenly, and they're gathered all together. God speaks, and then it's over. Now, next then... We see in these scriptures the capture of the beast. Remember, the beast is the Antichrist. Verse number 20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now remember, the, the Antichrist and the false prophet... These are the people that are deceiving the world. These two men, these are Satan's golden boys. And the world has really stood back in admiration of these two men, especially the Antichrist. I mean, his charisma, his, his business savvy, his political acumen, his, that's unrivaled. And at this point, the world has actually been worshiping him as God. And they're hiding behind him as if he's invincible. Remember this that they said about him in, in the 13th chapter, verse number 4? And they worshipped the dragon. That is, they worshipped Satan, which gave power unto the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And now they find out who's able to make war with him. And there really isn't much of a war at all, because God grabs him and his evil buddy by the nape of the neck, and he throws them into the lake of fire. It gets rid of them. The world is rid of them. So we see here there's a problem for the world, and that is the loss of leadership. There's a problem for the battle because of loss of leadership. Uh, the Antichrist had everybody so wrapped up, every dime of commerce had to go through him. It all had to be approved by him. He was the leader. He was actually the state. His kingdom is the state. He represents that. He, he's the one that they worship. He's their God, but not any longer. And so there's nowhere for, for these people to turn. The protector, the one that they thought was the shield of defense for them, this is their God. But now he's as helpless against the power of Christ as they are. And so this multinational coalition with its millions of soldiers has lost leadership. Now you have chaos. You have a battlefield where nobody knows what to do. And there isn't any time anyway. They're snatched away quickly and then the end comes. So they're gathered to do battle against the Lord and his Christ. And you remember what the psalmist wrote about this? We read this scripture a couple of times in Psalm chapter 2. It also references the very time that we're talking about here. It says, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall have them in derision. And the reason for that verse is because the leadership of these people has been taken away from them. So their leaders are taken. You know what happens to them? The Bible tells us. They're thrown into the lake, burning with brimstone. 
These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Now that literally reads, alive they were thrown, these two, into the lake of fire. Now the original language actually puts emphasis on this because this is not the normal thing to happen to unbelievers. Now all of us know this, death comes first. And the soul then is cast into Hades, and that's a different burning fire. And then the soul waits for the resurrection of the body, then comes the judgment. And then they're cast into the lake of fire. But here we have a different method. I mean, this is not pass, go, collect $200. This is go directly to jail. You're missing all the intermediate steps there. So the false prophet and the Antichrist actually become the first inhabitants of the lake of fire. Now, it may be that their bodies die, and this means that their souls are sent directly into the lake of fire, but it appears that what God does is there's a very special privilege for them, if you want to call it that. They don't die but God transforms their bodies in some way, and he makes those bodies suitable for eternal torment. Now here, some people, when we're talking about eternal torment, they get very upset about that, and um, they believe in what's called annihilation. And they think that, well, uh, there is no such thing as the doctrine of endless punishment in the Scriptures, so they think they're too smart for God, and they say, no, you don't suffer in a fire of hell. What happens is you go to hell and instantly you're burned up. That's it. And you go out of existence. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. The Bible teaches that the soul is created for eternity. Let me show you a scripture to help us prove this. If you look down there at chapter 20, verse number 10, here it tells us that Satan goes into the lake of fire also. Now, when Satan goes, it's 1,000 years after the time period that we're talking about here, the Battle of Armageddon. And guess who's still in the fire a thousand years later? Verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So they weren't burned up. They weren't annihilated. They're still there. And Scripture says they're tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, we're going to come to that scripture a little bit later, and we'll talk about judgment, and we'll talk about the fate of the lost, and then we'll bring all this back up again. Now, let's finish then with verse number 21, and this tells us about the conquest in the battle. And we, and we talked about this one way or another many times before, but the 21st verse says, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So the battle starts, Christ starts the carnage, The Antichrist and the false prophet are taken, and I suppose when that happens that many people that are their protectors are immediately killed. And then we come to this verse that shows us that there is no one who escapes. Everyone that enters into this valley will be killed, right down to the last man. There will be no survivors in this battle. It happens so quickly, there's no time for retreat. And so this verse is given to us to help us to understand the utter devastation Now, some people take this and they interpret it to mean that all the people in the world, everybody that served the beast will be killed, that there's not one person in his empire that will be left. Well, I think that presents a problem because then who goes into the millennial kingdom to be ruled with a rod of iron? Some people say that, well, there there are no unbelievers in the millennial kingdom at first, but what happens, everybody that goes into the millennial kingdom is actually a saved person. And then they have children, and since those children have a sinful nature, they don't believe in God. And so this whole thing starts up all over again. 
And so they're the ones that, that uh, join Satan at the end when he's released from the bottomless pit, and they're the ones who try to defy God again. And then God destroys the world with fire. Now, I don't see it that way. To me, it appears that all believers most likely are going to be killed before the battle of Armageddon, and all believers come back with Christ to fight in the battle. Then unbelievers that are in other parts of the world that are not a part of this battle, uh, they're, they're in the Antichrist kingdom, but they didn't come to the battle. So they're not saved. They're sinners with no freedom to sin, and they go into the millennial kingdom where they'll be ruled with a rod of iron. And their children, as you go through that thousand years, these are the ones that are deceived, and they're the ones that try to overthrow Christ when Satan is loosed. But they won't be able to do that. They won't be able to get the army together. See, the, the battle of Armageddon is the last battle that takes place on the earth. This is it. There are, there are no more battles like Armageddon. So when these people rebel against God at the end of the millennial kingdom... And in the next message, we're going to talk about uh, the millennial kingdom somewhat and give you some idea of some, uh, what people believe about the coming of Christ or, or the millennial kingdom itself. But they're not going to be able to mount an offensive against God because before that happens, God destroys the world with fire. Now, what I want you to see is that this is the way everything has been planned out. This is written to show us that God knows how everything is going to play out. There's no guesswork here. Uh, This is the outcome. When God said to Eve, your seed is going to crush the serpent's head, nothing else is possible. This has to happen. Jesus will reign, and the earth will be restored. It's a promise, and it will happen. Now, the question, though, is how is it going to end for you? You fit into this picture somewhere. Everybody in this room tonight, you fit into this picture somewhere. Uh, you may be in the armies that come back with Christ, and I know that if you're saved, you're not going to go through the tribulation if Jesus returns tonight. You're, you'll go home to be with him. You won't go through the, through the tribulation. You'll be gone from the earth. And Christ is going to take you out one of two ways out of this world. If you're a Christian, he takes you out by natural death, Or he comes back and he transforms the living bodies of Christians into a glorified body. But there actually could be someone here tonight that will see all of this. That is because you didn't know Christ. And Christ comes back before you die. You're not a born-again believer. And it's possible you might make it all the way through the battle of Armageddon or through the tribulation time and get into this battle. Now, if Harold Camping's right and Christ comes back on May 21st, and you're not a Christian, for sure you're going to go through the tribulation. Now, if Christ comes back, it's not because Harold had it figured out. Uh, it's because the timing is right, not because he figured it out. You know, somewhere, some, someday, somewhere in the world, somebody's going to say Christ is coming back on such and such a date. Somebody's going to say that, and you know they're going to be right. They're going to be right because the coming of Christ is inevitable as God is righteous. He is coming back. And so probably someday, sometime, somebody's going to guess it, but not because they got the information from the Bible or anywhere else, because it's not there. We just know he's coming back. So maybe somebody will guess the day. The question, again, is are you prepared for it? Are you prepared to die? Now, whether Christ comes back this year, next year, a thousand years from now, the Bible teaches that you're going to die. You're not going to get out of this world alive. And Armageddon is just a taste of God's judgment. And I hope that nobody here ever has to see 
God's judgment, the full extent of God's judgment, standing before him without knowing Jesus Christ, and then come down to that day that you're cast into the lake of fire because you didn't trust in him. That's what all of this is about. This is why the Bible records it. It's to encourage us to trust Christ right now. Believe him because that's the only way your soul is going to be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to stand before these people tonight, Lord, and we just pray there's no one here without Christ. Pray that everyone is a believer and they know where they're going when they die. And as we look at this, it's good information that we can pass along to others and you wouldn't have put it in the book if you didn't want us to talk about it and to try to understand it. So, Lord, we just pray that you'd speak to Christians tonight to give the message to others about salvation. And if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that they would see what's coming ahead. And, Lord, that they would turn to you even right now. Bless us as we end our service tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.